Hello and welcome to Media Buddhi A to Z, the podcast by Boom Live. Here we talk about contentious words, controversial and debatable words like appropriation, allyship, bhakt, bias, and so on. Every week, we pick some words from a single letter. And this week, it's the turn of the letter C. I'm Archis Chaudhary. And currently, I'm sitting all the way in France in a tiny village in an island of the French West Coast. The weather here is really hot and the locals are crying about it. But as an Indian, I feel right at home. And I feel insanely jealous, Archis. (laughs) Hi, I'm Divya Chandra. And since I've already given you my location history in a previous episode, let me tell you a little about how I ended up pursuing journalism after engineering. And trust me, it's a question that has been asked by a gazillion people. You know, after taking non-medical in classes 11 and 12, I thought I could pull off engineering just that I couldn't and didn't find my interest there. So while I was pursuing engineering, they started with a college newsletter called Papyrus and I started writing for it, became its head and then saw my passion in writing and finally ended up being a journalist. And this week, by the way, we have words like cancel culture, conspiracy theories, chilling effect, cognitive bias, capitalism, cheap fakes and cishet. Yeah, nice lineup. Uh, by the way, I'm HR Venkatesh. I'm the guy who was jealous insanely of Archis. I call myself an NRB, that is non-resident Bangalorean. Wherever I go in the world, I'm an NRB and currently I'm in New Delhi. But first, we have cancel culture. It's an intriguing term and like all terms in this series, it can be misunderstood and there are many hues or aspects to it that we will run through. We'll also ask a question Is it a fair term to use at all? But first, let me ask you both. When you see the term cancel culture, what runs through your mind? Honestly, something negative. I mean, I'm not really very pro-cancel culture because I feel it's too extreme. And the way it's being used on social media, I just feel it's just very vicious. I mean, a person could be wrong. You may or may not agree with their opinions. But that does not mean that you have to completely cancel it or that particular individual. I mean, you can put it out there that you disagree, give your reasons, but the word cancel makes it too extreme. Yeah, I kind of uh, agree with you there, Divya. It does sound something very negative to me, something quite harsh and impulsive and uh, kind of exhibits mob-like behavior, you know. Uh, say somebody found a tweet of yours when, when you, that you made when you were young, and then uh, suddenly uh, you were being made accountable for it, uh, you know, much later in life. And, you know, nobody takes into account whether you had gone through a development in between or whether you had changed in between. So, yeah, you're made to answer for something, you know, whereas you may hold completely different views. And uh, it doesn't allow room for any mistakes, genuine errors uh, uh, in opinion. So, so yeah, I, I think it, it can take some very, very... Uh, vicious shape. Hmm. You know, I I have a slightly different perspective. Uh, Like I said earlier, whether it's a fair term to use at all is a question. Uh, Because the term cancel culture sometimes is used from the perspective of the person who's being cancelled, obviously. And in many cases, people who are being cancelled are really powerful. You know, they have big platforms. 
But, you know, we'll get there. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I think a good thing would be to do right now is to de-hyphenate the two terms. So the term cancel or cancellation is a term used to describe when a person is completely and totally ostracized from the public sphere. It's like an updated version of a person being exiled in disgrace from a kingdom in days of yore. Uh, Well, the point here is the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, they're not good examples here because the figures in them, you know, uh, Rama and uh, Lakshmana and Sita and then also the Pandavas, they were not exiled in disgrace, rather they were tricked into being exiled. But in all other cases, cancellation is the modern equivalent of exile. And in that, it results in total cancellation of the person. But if you look at it case by case, things get a little more complicated. I agree. Uh, for example, take the case of J.K. Rowling. It's a popular case and uh, she was sort of cancelled multiple times and she faced a lot of backlash for making comments about trans women not being women. And her comments were considered as being that of a turf, uh, which means trans exclusionary radical feminist. And even the actors who played in the Harry Potter films were part of that backlash. I have a question here, though, a little provocative. Did she deserve to be called out for her comments? And the other part of it is, uh, which is from the other side, is was J.K. Rowling actually cancelled? For your first question, you know, I mean, I, I do see a problem here. Now, I personally don't agree with her comments. Um, however, uh, by cancelling her, we are kind of killing the discussion, you know. Because uh, what is transgender? What is woman? What is man? You know, what is non-binary? These are some very heavy, heavy concepts, you know, and something that requires uh, very intricate kind of discussions. Now, it's not really apparent to everyone. We can have these kind of views like the one that Rowling holds because it's, it's really not uncommon to think like that, is it? It's not easy to break free from this man-woman gender structure, which has existed throughout civilization. So when you cancel a person like that, it, it does take away uh, the discussion. Uh, as for whether she was really cancelled, I mean, at least on social media, she was. In reality, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, she definitely has been um, called out on social media, but she is far, far from actually being cancelled, in my view. She's still the author of a successful franchise, uh, Uh, the Robert Galbraith series, uh, you know, that's a new one is going to come out soon. She's still working on the film series um, and she has plenty of space and she has a platform to air her views. Uh, So I I feel a person like that who's really powerful, even though they've been called out multiple times, I don't think they're really cancelled. Yeah, and you know, closer home also, there have been a lot of boycott trends like the Tanishq ad controversy, Fab India's Diwali ad, even a lot of celebrity be- celebrities being boycotted for their films, web series, and there are so many more examples. Yeah, those ones are pretty problematic, I feel, you know, especially the Tanishq and Fab India examples that you gave. Uh, so that they're a more, a more, an even more vicious form of cancel culture that exists here in India called the boycott culture. Uh, and, you know, in these cases, uh, since uh, I've been kind of following this on social media and I've written stories on, on these boycotts, uh, uh, so these trends are actually kind of manufactured. So you could say these are manufactured cancellation. 
that happens on the internet. Somebody creates these trends and, you know, spreads it out using IT cells. And then people just jump in, you know. So it's not really organic from the get-go. But, you know, it picks up with a lot of people kind of, you know, chiming in. Yeah, that's a nice term you've coined, Achis, uh, manufactured cancellation. And also the other term, boycott culture. So these are interesting, important terms. Uh, you know, typically speaking, uh, a, a Tanish kind of situation um, is is not commonly seen as cancel culture, but it is, of course, it, uh, you know, obviously. It's just that many people view cancel culture as people on the right, you know, complaining that they don't, they, you know, they, they, they're being castigated for their views. Um, whereas this is a case of people on the West, on, on, I wouldn't say the left, but basically people at the center being called out by mob culture. And I agree. Uh, I think we can use the term cancel culture here as well. I, I want to check about another example, which is uh, the former journalist and uh, politician MJ Akbar. Oh, wow. Uh, um, for MJ, I would say, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm going to contradict myself here. I, I'd say here that he deserves some cancelling, you know. The, I mean, the allegations against him were widespread, you know, and by multiple women. But he, he ended up getting a job with Z News, you know, and uh, I'm not usually pro-cancel culture, as I said before, but this guy, uh, he has not faced any legal consequences for his actions. Now, of course, uh, you know, he, he should always give the benefit of doubt, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But, you know, he is a powerful person. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of worried that, you know, he will get away uh, kind of using his power. You know, he leverage it to kind of uh, subvert justice. It's not something that doesn't happen in India. So... So I don't know, maybe cancelling him is the only way to make him accountable? I don't know, what do you think? Also, just wanted to point out here that the matter is still subjudice. And I just feel maybe the term becomes trickier when powerful people are involved. You know, I mean, that's an interesting point you made, Divya, it is subjudice. And also to respond to your other thoughts, Archis, you know, it all ultimately comes down to who is cancelled and who is doing the cancelling. Powerful people, when they cancel, when they kind of complain that they're being cancelled, many people say, hey, look, you had a platform, you continue to have a platform. What about all the other people who are minorities or who, who are basically historically underprivileged? They don't have a platform. So if they say something, they shouldn't be cancelled. Um, so, so I want to talk about this uh, letter in Harper's uh, magazine, um, one of the old glossy magazines uh, in the United States, more than 150 people, some of them very powerful, came together and they wrote an open letter. And this open letter was against what they call uh, an intolerance of um, people making their views told. And uh, it was about cancel culture. They were, they were, they were talking against cancel culture. And uh, people like J.K. Rowling, Margaret Atwood from the world of literature, Farid Zakaria from the world of journalism, uh, and a connection to India, Salman Rushdie, the writer, all of these people signed this letter. Now, some of these people said later on, oh, if I had known that X and Y was also signing this letter, I would not have signed the letter. And ultimately, uh, there was a counter letter that was uh, another open letter that was published with about 160 people 
all of them coming together uh, and saying, you know, this letter was completely uncalled for. And uh, these are all academics and journalists and all of that again, but they were not as powerful as the first lot. And one of them said, and I quote in, 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 in that counter letter, they said the signatories, many of them white, wealthy, and endowed with massive platforms, argue that they are afraid of being silenced, that so-called cancel culture is out of control, that they fear for their jobs and free exchange of ideas, even as they speak from one of the most prestigious magazines in the country, unquote. So, you know, when, when you look at all of this, uh, there are two other terms that come to mind that are closely aligned, which is punching up and punching down. Now, the idea is that if a historically disenfranchised person or individual is seeking to hold someone who is powerful or a group that is powerful accountable and they say stuff, they are actually punching up and it is silencing them is, is, is definitely not a good thing, right? But when it's the opposite, when it's a powerful person who has historically enjoyed privilege is now saying, hey, I'm being muzzled. They're saying that's that's a question of, you know, what you were doing earlier was punching down and now you're being held accountable. So that's actually a good thing. So I think the 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 other C word is very relevant here, which is context. And in each case, I feel that it comes down to the context when, when we talk about cancel culture. And there's another term I like, which is consequence culture, which is the idea that one must face consequences of one's actions. Uh, so... It's not actually cancellation. It's more like consequences. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think now it's time for our next word, chilling effect. And since it's related to cancel culture, because, you know, both terms are about freedom of expression. <laughs> and to be honest, after that discussion, I, I kind of need another chilling, different kind of chilling effect. You know, when you have a chilled soft drink to deal with the immense heat and humidity of New Delhi. <laughs> <laughs> but jokes apart, and this is yeah. a terrible joke, you know, it's like a dad joke. Anyway, the joke, the joke apart, the chilling effect we are referring to here is a very real phenomenon in India today. So the definition of chilling effect, and it's an old term, is that feeling when you don't want to stick your neck out because of restrictions and regulations in other areas. For example, if you have an intolerant society that penalizes you from speaking out on violence against people, it might have a chilling effect on you. And even though you might want to speak about violence against women, you have second thoughts. Yeah, you know, even loss could create a chilling effect. In fact, the way laws are interpreted and the way they are misused uh, could create chilling effect. And that is why, you know, you, you may have heard this term, you know, it is not the law that guarantees justice. You know, it is how good your lawyer is. <laughs> I should say from my personal life, uh, I can give an example. My father thinks twice about writing anything, even remotely controversial on WhatsApp, because he feels he might be arrested or get into trouble. He also makes sure that he's not the admin of any WhatsApp group because he feels admins can be targeted as well. Now, no amount of cajoling will make him change his mind. This is not because he has ever been targeted personally. And uh, that's because, you know, he's a relatively uncontroversial guy. He doesn't uh, talk too much about what's going on in the public sphere. He's a typical, uh, you know, citizen who's not, uh, who's not been a journalist or writer. He's an engineer. Now, this is the chilling effect at work. Uh, he sees other people being targeted and he feels, you know, I should not speak out on anything that I'm passionate about. 
So, so what causes uh, chilling effect really? I think one would be which we've already discussed also. There, these would be laws, you know, like such as sedition. When you know, when sedition law is misused, and even criminal defamation. Also, at times, even courts admit flimsy uh, cases. Yeah, and we can also add other things that can create a chilling effect. Speeches by certain politicians, censorship by mob, for example, when people are trolled by individuals or groups, either online or offline, when people are issued rape threats and death threats, it's not just the targets who are affected. They're, they're of course, terribly affected. It's all the others as well who are reading about what happened. What's the effect that goes on them? They, they, they feel like they don't... They shouldn't stick their necks out. Yeah, I think cultural norms could also create uh, intolerance and fear, you know, stop people from speaking out, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about the media. The media can also add to the chilling effect. And this is especially the case with pliant media. And of course, uh, you know, even technological surveillance. I mean, it may be real, it may not be real, but even perceived surveillance by the government or big tech companies it, it can make you want to just shut up, you know, and not talk about injustices. You know, nobody wants to have Pegasus on their tails, right? Yeah. Just the word, you know, Pegasus makes me feel anxious just thinking about it. And that's the whole point, right? <laughs> Ultimately, what happens to a society is that so many thoughts become taboo that it causes problems. For example, the chilling effect, as we know, it leads to self-censorship, which also leads to thought censorship because how long can you you know say oh you know what i'm having these thoughts but i'm not going to speak them ultimately you're going to be like i'm going to go mad so i'm not even going to think about these things so you end up censoring yourself not just speech wise but thought wise as well and this in turn leads to the death of ideation and that's not a good thing because we've seen um, in in the case of uh, what is known as the enlightened enlightenment in western europe Scientific progress begins increasing at a faster rate when the culture becomes relatively freer. So you can actually think about ideas that could have got you into trouble. Now, if you constrict yourself to even think about dangerous ideas, then you are never going to um, innovate solutions in you know many spheres of life. Yeah, so, so one takeaway from this short discussion would be that you might want to think about the chilling effect in your life and where you feel reluctant to talk about certain topics or discussing them with other people. Yeah, I mean, if you actually have any such thoughts or take on chilling effect, you know, maybe situations that you were, you know, you stopped yourself from speaking, you can actually write to us and we can discuss this maybe some other time. So, with that, we're going to conclude our discussion on chilling effect and it's time for our next word, which is cognitive bias. Also useful to know that we have done two words and there are a few more to go after cognitive bias. So, last week we discussed bias, right? Venkatesh, why don't you do a little recap on bias for our listeners? Good idea. I mean, uh, the topic of bias is so big, we thought we'd parcel it out over different episodes. So in the last week, we just spoke about the idea that, you know, the, uh, the word bias, um, as it's commonly understood, is not what we mean when we use the word bias. This is more like a scientific term. And it's become really um, not popular. I'll say we've, it's, we've discovered the idea of bias. 
uh, and it's really uh, seed, been seeded across the world in the last 10 years. Um, and so one of the things we did was that we talked about what a bias is, which is it's a hidden prejudice that shapes the way we think, the way we talk and the way we behave. And, and we say hidden because our own biases are very rarely apparent to us and they happen very subconsciously. Um, and these biases have little to do with facts and more to do with preconceived notions. Um, I think we need an example here. Uh, anyone, Divya? Yes, of course. I'll give an example of gender bias. So just for the purpose of this example, we shall go by the hypothesis of binary gender. That's men and women. So the preconceived notion here is that women are weaker than men, whereas there is absolutely no data or evidence to back that up. And we know that with enough training, women can get as strong as men are. However, because of the, you know, the widespread belief that women are weak, we get largely left out of jobs that require intense physical involvement. You know, for example, the army. And according to Ministry of Defense data, which was provided in February 2021, women made up only 0.6% of the Indian army. This is good. This is good. That, that's a good example you gave. So what you two just said shows that biases are basically errors in judgment and thinking and happens due to various factors. So what is cognition? It is basically how we understand or know about the reality around us using our senses, our thoughts and our experiences. So when you put those words together, cognitive bias, it basically refers to systematic patterns of deviation from rational thinking. That's the definition in psychology. And it has everything to do with how we understand reality itself. So just to dumb this thing down, we can say that cognitive biases basically refers to irrationality in judgment and decision making. So uh, basically deciding that women are weaker than men, whereas as you mentioned, Divya, there is no evidence to it, or rather there is counter evidence to it. That is the irrationality of our minds. Yeah, kind of heavy, huh? I think we need to break this down a little bit. Um, so yeah, you 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 go on, uh, Archis, and then maybe we'll we'll bring in some personalities and and uh, you know uh, tell a couple of stories to make this easier. Yeah, that's a good idea. Actually, let's do that. So just to explain this further, I will bring in two brilliant behavioral scientists called Amos Tversky and uh, Daniel Kahneman. And uh, during their time at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, they started looking into how we think and uh, how we decide and how we judge. So they came up with two different agents of thought processes, you know, two different systems of thinking, which happens in every human mind. And uh, one of them they called system two, which was the rational way of thinking where one would take into account all the facts and evidence and take a very balanced approach to decision making. This system is very intricate. It takes its time and it produces rational and unbiased thoughts. And we all really like to think that this is how we think. This is the only way we think. We are very rational people. But it's actually not so because they found another system. They call this the system one. And this was the much faster and intuitive method of thinking. And they found that system one was basically the one that ruled most of our thought processes. This is the, the, the big one, actually. And uh, because we have evolved in a way uh, in the wild, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, and the time taken to think was a matter of life and death, you know? And even today, you know, just 
Just I'll give you an example. Intuitive thinking saves a lot of time even today. For example, if you want to buy coffee on your way to work and say you're a little bit late, you take a peek inside your favorite cafe, you take a quick look at the size of the crowd and very intuitively you decide whether you have the time to buy coffee or not. Now, you're not going to count the number of people standing in the line. You're not going to make an assumption of how long it is going to take each person to buy coffee. You're not going to see how many people are available at the counter and then rationally calculate the time. I mean, that's too long. You know, you don't have the time for this. So this is fast thinking. And generally, it's good. Generally, it saves us a lot of time. You say generally. I mean, I guess this is where we come back to the cognitive biases. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think I was starting to digress a little bit. So our researchers, Amos and Daniel, they found out that this system one or fast intuitive thinking makes a lot of errors uh, due to the shortcuts it takes to provide us the fastest result. Uh, so basically, when we put one and one together, we don't always get a two. But whatever we get, we accept it anyway without understanding that we have actually made an error. And these systematic errors due to lack of clear rational thinking, those are cognitive biases. Yeah, I think this is starting to make sense, but um, um, I'm going to ask you both a question. Have you heard of um, Homer Simpson? Yes, of yeah. course. Okay, uh, from The Simpsons, the famous uh, series. And then have you heard yeah. of Spock? Yeah, Star Trek, yeah. the Vulcan. Yeah, so Captain Spock, I think that's what he's called. Um, so yeah, he's Captain a Spock. human, half Vulcan, uh, and uh, it's from the series Star Trek. And uh, Vulcans are very famous for not being emotional, of being 100% rational. Uh, and so, uh, the, you know, the Star Trek, uh, Star Trek series is full of this guy fighting his human side and <laughs> his Vulcan side. The whole point, though, is that, um, you know, many of us have both, I think all of us have both Homer and Spock in us. Homer refers to what you would call system one. Uh, it basically intuitive, instinctive, the gut feeling, fast thinking. There's another term given that's automatic system. And Spockian or Spock thinking is like system two. It's conscious, deliberate, rational. It's kind of what is known as slow thinking. It's also known as the reflective system. And this is basically uh, an analogy that was created by two people, uh, Richard Taylor, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, and Cass Sunstein, who's a legal scholar, and uh, they write about this in the book Nudge. Um, so the whole point is that we have Homer and Spock in us, and sometimes when misinformation or fake news or propaganda comes into us, it kind of hijacks the Homer in us, right? Uh, so if you hear some term, something bad about some community or, or, or an individual, immediately it activates our system one or the Homer in us. And, and we immediately jump to conclusions. Uh, when the idea is that you can actually train the Homer in you to become more like Captain Spock. Um, and there are ways and means to do that. So what we'll do is we don't have to go further than that. There is a piece that I wrote on Media Buddhi uh, we link it in the show notes, and then from there you can find links to uh, the original that is that book, Nudge. That, that's actually quite useful. Uh, so, word to our listeners, do check out this book. It's a brilliant one. 
And uh, so getting back to cognitive biases, uh, it's actually a growing list. And, you know, we have so many of them right now. And uh, knowing about them really helps us understand about how we think and the, the errors that we can make possibly. So we are going to mention a few in this episode, uh, especially the ones that are uh, relevant to our line of work. The big one is confirmation bias. Uh, it's something we had mentioned in the passing in the previous episode as well. And uh, it's basically the type of cognitive bias where our mind in very involuntarily tends to seek out and favor information that confirms the ideas and beliefs we already hold. It's practically one of the biggest contributors to the spread of misinformation. It's an irrational behavior where basically believable matters more than evidence. It's also the reason kind of uh, why uh, people will tell you, oh, no, this, is, uh, this, is, this must be true, right? This, this seems believable. And they don't check further because it seems believable. Right. Any other type of uh, cognitive biases we should know about, Arches? Yes, definitely. Uh, there is also a framing effect, another big one, uh, and uh, probably as important as confirmation bias. And uh, it's one of the most crucial ways that the media shapes our way of thinking and uh, based on how facts are framed and uh, it's framing effect is very important we are going to definitely discuss this in much greater details once we arrive at f and uh, again this uh, list of cognitive biases are growing by the day and more and more studies are being done on this topic uh, you have overconfidence bias another popular one where you think your judgment is more rational than it already than it really is uh, you have herd mentality, also called mob mentality, where you tend to agree with the points of views of the larger crowd. You think, okay, lot, all so many people think so, so it must be correct. And, you know, uh, this is irrespective of rationality of that thought. Then you also have the narrative fallacy where uh, if you uh, believe in a certain narrative, then you tend to interpret events as part of that larger story, regardless of evidence uh, or lack of it, you know, connecting all the dots. Uh, you also have anchoring bias. It's uh, really a favorite in marketing agencies where we tend to overuse the first point of reference uh, as, you know, like uh, the first a piece of information given to us as a strong point of reference. For example, if you want to sell an expensive car, then you better place it next to an even more expensive car. So people should first look at that very expensive car and then the one that you want to sell. So, you know, they will look at it relative to the price of the first car rather than objectively. So, yeah, we are kind of the slave to cognitive biases in so many ways and even more so when we aren't aware of it. So I would really recommend our listeners to read this book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he brilliantly puts across all the work he did with Amos Tversky in the form of a really wonderful story. And for those of you who are interested but uh, don't want to read uh, thinking fast and slow, a masala version <laughs> is the Undoing Project. It's written by Michael Lewis, uh, one of the great nonfiction writers of our era, and it tells the story of Kahneman and Tversky and how they came across, uh, how did they, how they did their work. It's like a biography of the two of them together, and it talks about you know all the other stuff, the jealousies, the rivalry, the feelings. Uh, you know when one person gets invited to one university to get tenure and the other person doesn't get invited to the other university and so on and so forth. It's very interesting and it also talks about all the stuff we've been talking about. Anyway, it's time now for our next word. I think we spent quite a bit on 
uh, on confirmation bias and cognitive biases. And I think we will continue to do that in future episodes. But for now, um, Devya, Archis, your fact checkers, right? So you must have come across the term cheap fake. Uh, only all the time. Frankly, that's what the misinformation industry thrives on. So please explain for us what a cheap fake is and how is that different from deep fakes. Uh, you might as well explain what a deep fake is as well. Right. So any altered, morphed photograph is essentially a cheap fake unless it's a deep fake. Now, you know, you, mu you might be wondering what a deep fake is. So when something has been modified with the help of uh, AI, which is art artificial intelligence, you know, techniques used like uh, machine learning. So it's nearly impossible even for fact checkers to tell whether it's an authentic video or an authentic image or it has been morphed. So when, when basically there's no human intervention, there is AI involved, it becomes a deep fake. Cheap fakes are usually easier and, you know, that's what, uh, honestly, as fact checkers, we debunk on a daily basis. And uh, comparatively, cheap fakes are something you can usually tell on the spot uh, as compared to a deep fake, especially if you're, if you're paying attention, if you're being critical of uh, the, the media that you've received. And uh, so, so because with deep fakes, you can't really tell, you know, most of the time, uh, if, especially if it's well done, it's really impossible to tell without the help of AI uh, to see, to say whether it's fake or not. Whereas cheap fakes are very basic changes, you know, swapping faces, um, you know, uh, messing up the audio. These kind of things are cheap fakes. And uh, usually if you pay a little bit of attention, you can tell. Cheap fakes, deep fakes, yes. And I, I like this other word, sasta fake also. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's basically, it's just not just, it's, it's, it's a, a, these, these kinds of cheap fakes are very, very common, right? Actually, let yeah. me ask you a question. Uh, how common are cheap fakes when, when it comes to fighting misinformation? How common are deep fakes? So what we as fact checkers debunk on a daily basis mostly come under the category of cheap fakes because honestly, uh, deep fakes are not only uh, extremely difficult to debunk, but it's extremely difficult to create them as well. Like, you know, with the... Um, Cheap fakes, we usually have some red flags. Like, you know, when we see an image or a video, we, there is some red flag that will suggest to the fact checkers that, okay, this should be checked. But with deep fakes, even we can't, uh, you know, like we can't just spot the red flag like that. Like it requires a lot of deep uh, investigation. And even then it's not sure that we'll be able to find it or not. Yeah, I, I really don't think we have actually debunked a deep fake ever, you know, and boom. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean uh, exactly. I mean, because cheap fakes already work so well, especially uh, because most people are not paying that kind of attention that we are in our newsroom. So cheap fakes are already working pretty well. So, you know, why go through all the trouble to, to make deep fake yet? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the only deep fake uh, that comes to my mind, like, you know, it, it, I think it's the Manoj Tiwari one who's a BJP mm. and uh, yeah. I mean, uh, he, when he was campaigning for the Delhi elections, uh, that's the, I mean, that story, even that story was not really debunked by any fact checker as such Indian fact checker. It was basically, I think, a vice report that really uh, reported on, you know, the deep fake that was used by him in his campaign. Yeah, I mean, uh, just for clarity's sake, Manoj Tiwari, um, he released or the, the BJP released speeches 
in which uh, he's speaking in multiple languages. I think three languages. And uh, it's basically based off one video that he made. And uh, they manipulated it using deepfake technology uh, to make him sound like he's speaking in another language, uh, matching his lip movements and matching his voice as well. So that's why deep fakes are really dangerous. And of course, the really famous one is um, the very first one was Barack Obama uh, coming out with a public service announcement. But actually, it was the creation of uh, the filmmaker and comedian Jordan Peele, along with BuzzFeed. The two of them got together and then they created this AI and a deep fake. And then they released it saying, hey, this is a deep fake. Uh, so we'll, we'll include a link to the, those uh, that video in the show notes uh, as well. Okay, now uh, moving on to something uh, heavier. Next up, we have capitalism. Now, before we start this, uh, you two want to tell me whether uh, capitalism is good or bad. You know, I used to initially think of it as a good thing, but nowadays it's just starting to feel like it's a bad thing. Uh, in, in my case too, you know, um, I was very much uh, intrigued by classical economics as a as a young working person, and uh, I, I was in, in I was in thrall to capitalism. And you know, the big question for me was always the vexing question, which is, hey, um, if we just focus on economic growth, a lot of other things fall by the wayside. But if we don't focus on economic growth, the other things will never come up. At least that was my assumption. But now I'm beginning to feel like there isn't only one way to uh, to develop country status. Uh, the, 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 the way that has happened, that has worked all along is the capitalism way, the capitalist way, but it has created all kinds of issues. So I'm kind of leaning towards not it's so much in favor of capitalism these days. You two make some pretty good points, actually. And uh, the reason why capitalism was seen as good or the reason why it worked well, well, for that, we need to go back in time a little bit, you know, back when the kings owned everything and then provided for its subjects. And eventually the nation state came into being and in its early stages, the state owned everything and provided for its subjects. And the ownership was driven by various goals. It could be uh, on the productive uh, stuff like, you know, building cities, building canals, irrigation system, etc. Or it could be to establish some kind of religious hegemony, or it could be uh, for the personal uh, goals of the king, you know, personal greed of the king. So uh, it was very subjective and, you know, uh, things could go wrong very easily. Capitalism changed things in a way that private ownership started taking over state ownership. So common people could, you know, come in, you know, and uh, give their money to own something or own part of something. And this ownership was driven by one goal only, which was profit, profit driven, you know, the profit in the sense that uh, the value of what you own uh, has to go up and everybody wants that, right? So capitalism assumes that everybody wants more and this commonality and greed will hold us together and it'll keep the system flourishing. So theoretically, this uh, profit-driven market is also called free enterprise or free market. Uh, and this is where, you know, you have that famous supply-demand graph that comes into, into question. And, you know, I'm sure you guys uh, both can imagine, picture this graph. And, you know, that is the, the crux of capitalism, basically. Right. That makes sense. But it makes me, uh, I mean, I have a question now. If greed is the main driver of capitalism, then why was it considered a good thing for so long? 
Good question. So uh, let's, I mean, it's greed now. I mean, we see it as greed now and we understand it as greed now. But back then it was seen as, you know, oh, just wanting a little bit more, you know, uh, having, you know, the, the desire to have a little more. I, I, I want some, some more things. So let's, I want to, you know, do something for it. So again, to explain this, uh, let's go back, you know, um, three, four hundred years back, even further back, actually. Uh, so as I said, the state was once represented by a king or a very small group of people. And, you know, democracy is fairly new to most countries. Uh, so the, the market was basically driven by the impulses of one person or a few people. And the treasury was usually very much uh, not autonomous, you know, and part of this uh, monarchy or, you know, whatever, whoever ruled the state. So capitalism kind of helped us break free from that. You know, during the Spanish conquests of America, the, the king decided on how these conquests would take place and, you know, where the money would go. And his own personal greed for money and power was the only thing in his mind. And so many of these conquests failed, you know, uh, so because he would put all his money in, you know, all his money and everyone else's money, the treasury of the state into very specific conquests and you know when they failed they lost miserably meanwhile up north in the dutch kingdom the banking system was separated from the monarchy so their decisions were autonomous and this these banks collected money from different groups of people and put it as investments into multiple expeditions so instead of putting large amounts of money into a few expeditions people could now split it into various expeditions you know they can put they can diversify their investments and by doing so the birth the modern modern capitalism as we know it was born basically in, in the dutch kingdom in the 16th century you know um one that is all of this is interesting uh, one big criticism of course that one hears of capitalism is that it creates inequality and extreme poverty there, there are other couple of other points i want to make but let's just let's just Focus on that. Does all of this mean the market is really free? Yeah, that's that's also another good point, and uh, it's something that we have uh, come to uh, observe uh, very prominently, especially in the twenty first century. Maybe in the twentieth or nineteenth century, it wasn't as prominent. But it, so when you talk about freedom, actually, uh, it's too free. You could say, you know. Uh, and, you know, some people, some of our listeners would be like, oh, what is too free? Freedom is a good thing. Um, but is it really, you know, because there's always this uh, discussion between, you know, freedom and e equality. And, you know, apparently you have to kind of find a compromise between the two. So uh, what I'm saying, I'll give you an example, actually. So freedom to act as you wish, uh, you know, it's, it's considered one of the biggest advantage of capitalism, right? It's also a driver for inequality because, you know, as Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels had put forward, capitalism creates two separate classes of workers and owners because not everybody can uh, own, right? Not everybody has the resources, but they're told that if you work hard enough, then you can get there and, uh, you know, you can build resources and uh, you can own as well. But it doesn't always happen because the freedom aspect of capitalism suggests that when you have competing owners, people who are basically competing to have the most wealth, they can decide to invest less and less on the skills of their workers, basically drop their wages lower and lower and workers, if all the owners are doing so, workers won't have a choice. And without any oversight from a larger governing body, say like the state, uh, to implement something like say a uh, minimum wage, 
there'll be no end to how low the wages can be dropped and you know this is something that happens in india so much you know we have the unorganized sector where you know people are used basically and you know there's no minimum wage people work on daily wages whatever they can get so the workers end up getting less and less owners keep getting richer and richer does this sound familiar yeah wow i mean i think isn't this what we keep seeing everywhere I mean, let's just take the case of Amazon. Their workers keep complaining about uh, harsh workplace practices, like you know, having to pee in bottles to meet supply chain demands, while uh, Jeff Bezos competes to be the richest guy in the world. Yeah, there you go. And that is why complete freedom is bad, right? There should always be a limit to freedom. And I mean, we are all we are all said your freedom ends where someone else's began begin, and so like. even in the free market you shouldn't be allowed to you shouldn't be free to exploit people right yeah <clears throat> you know i also want to make a couple of other additional points the whole i mean capitalism the the whole idea of it is very seductive uh, and we talk about uh, the the free market and all of that but the other one the really evocative image is the is the term the invisible hand right and and the whole idea that people are rational actors and that they will work in their own self interest and so when there everybody is working in their own self interest the market is going to make sure it very very efficiently distributes resources but you know now we know now that we've been uh, for about what 10 12 years been reading a lot of popular non fiction and it's come out of academics that people are not really rational actors we've been speaking about bias and we are subjected to so many biases it makes sense right i mean there is no such thing as an invisible hand and people are not rational actors so that theory itself is like kind of broken and the other thing is um the second point i wanted to make was that i think capitalism has destroyed the environment in ways we are only beginning to take stock of now and when i say the environment i mean not just nature but ourselves as well uh for example you know india is a middle income country we all wanted to be a developed country because it would mean hundreds and hundreds of millions of people more are lifted out of poverty and those who are out of poverty can be lifted to the next level and so on and so forth right but what is the cost we're going to pay ultimately that's a real trade off because if we all um you know start getting cancer because of extremely bad air in by the time we are 30 or 40 then that's a terrible trade off right so i think we are only now beginning to look at the environmental costs and so the whole idea is that countries like india can we afford to grow um keeping in mind all the collateral damage or should we just go ahead and grow anyway and then take care of the other stuff down the line so that's a real dilemma yeah and you know i'd like to add another point but i won't uh, focus too much on it which is that ideas spread like pro capitalism or pro any other idea they don't always spread spontaneously uh, they 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 spread through design and through um, campaigns and uh, i think what's happening now is that uh, there's a real understanding that capitalism is harmful and there is now uh, a lot of scholarship and research on how exactly it is harmful we'll leave it at that i think on capitalism um and uh, i think we have a few more words but we are wrapping up soon divya 
Yeah, the next word is conspiracy theories. As per the Merriam-Webster dictionary, conspiracy theory is a theory that explains an event or a set of circumstances as a result of a secret plot by usually powerful conspirators. You know, as the news cycle moves on, and so do misinformation and conspiracy theories, they basically try to portray that some part of the newsy event is being kept as a secret from the public. But why do people believe conspiracy theories so easily? I mean, rather, sometimes I feel that people believe conspiracy theories more than they believe fact checks, even though fact checks are watertight, they present evidence, uh, there, there's proof to it. I mean, I think the belief in conspiracy theory really stems from how strongly you believe in that particular topic or event. And the conspiracy theory just reinstates that. Vikrish, what comes to your mind when you think about conspiracy theories? The first thing that popped into my mind was um, there's a movie in the 1990s uh, starring Mel Gibson, uh, the controversial actor from Australia called Conspiracy Theory. That was my first introduction to the term conspiracy theory. Of course, uh, later on, I realized that uh, conspiracy theories are really ruining the lives of many people. Uh, and the other thing I remembered is there is uh, this NBA uh, basketball player his name is Kyrie Irving, and he very famously said, look, the earth is flat. So he would be what is known as a flat earther. And later on, he was he was basically, he recanted his views and I think apologized for them, but he's still a very controversial figure. And it's not like he's completely disavowed these views, right? And the other thing I would like to say is that the reason conspiracy theories are so persuasive is in fact, because they actually provide proof. It's not actual proof, but they, they call it proof, like a person who believes in UFOs and UFO landings, they look at other phenomena, uh, maybe naturally occurring phenomena, and then say, hey, this is proof that we have UFOs. So it's not like there is no evidence. It's just that the evidence is wrong. So that's those are my limited points. Right. And you know, with the technology advancing at such a high rate, so much so that everything is available at the click of a button on your phones, access and exposure to these conspiracy theories has also become way easier. And which, by the way, has become a nightmare for fact checkers. We keep getting queries on Boom's WhatsApp tip line asking us to verify claims that are more on the lines of conspiracy theories. Uh, some of them are so outlandish that there's absolutely no basis to them. Now, how do we debunk that? Uh, Arjis, have you come across such claims which are not fact-checkable, but again, have no basis either? I mean, what's the struggle like? Oh, there have been so many, you know, uh, just during COVID itself, uh, we had so many claims related to Bill Gates, you know, uh, but they're so hard to fact-check. I mean, they are very complex, you know, and there are so many points that are being connected. You can maybe debunk some of it, but not all of it. Uh, you know, because we don't have the resources to, you know, go around collecting all the evidence sometimes. So we have to, we have to sometimes let them go. Uh, but on face value, you can tell that they are bullshit or bakfast. Like, you know, Bill Gates attempting to control you using 5G through nanobots inserted in your brains through the COVID vaccines. Of course, it's bullshit. But, you know, how do you prove every every aspect of that claim, you know? Yeah, I mean, talking about 5G, there's a plethora of conspiracy yeah. theories around 5G. There's, you mean, the list is just, you can go on and on. 
also there's a drawback of not you know let's say so i mean uh, i think our listeners would have seen uh, some of the f- uh, warnings that you know facebook we as uh, third party fact checkers put on facebook posts saying that uh, this is misleading this is false this is moved and even twitter sometimes put uh, puts uh, labels on tweets you know which are which have a misleading information now the uh, i mean it's a good initiative that you know at least people are being aware about what is false and not now the problem with such labels is that not every post can be marked as true or false because i mean there's a there are a variety of reasons for that like fact checkers haven't come across that particular post there's a resource crunch some claims are not fact checkable now the only problem is that just because there's a post does not have a false tag that does not mean that you know it has to be true but however when when you are scrolling through facebook and you feel that okay this has not been marked so it has to be it would be true and because because it's not been called out yet which is basically what the implied truth effect is and which becomes more of a drawback because uh, i mean how do how do we tag every post and i think we could we can come later to uh, the implied truth effect when we discuss the yeah. word i <laughs> sounds good uh, i mean one of the things i, I would say is that uh, we fact checkers we kind of struggle because um as as uh, divya and archis have been saying it's not easy to uh, label everything you know sometimes you just don't know what kind of label and labels themselves sometimes are not as effective as has been conceded by the international fact checking community you know this politifacts a uh, very famous truthometer where on the one hand you have true you have false you have liar liar pants on fire it's a it's a very interesting kind of the rating system but the rating system doesn't always work in many cases it doesn't um so yeah we leave it at that it's time for our next word which is cis het and the background to this word is that i find that there are many concepts that relate to gender and sex that are much misunderstood and we have to constantly educate ourselves as well including the terms gender and sex uh we'll come to that uh, when it comes to the letter g and s uh, maybe but we are now living in an era where gender is not just seen as just male or female or just as a third sex as as we've accepted for a long time in india rather gender is seen as a spectrum so in this context the word cis het that is c i s h e t uh it's a combination of two words which is uh, cisgendered and uh, heterosexual it's a term that refers to a person who has accepted the gender that they were assigned at birth so a boy born as a boy accepts that he's a boy uh, a person born as born as a girl accepts that they're a girl uh, and they're attracted to the opposite sex when that happens uh, they're known as cis hets but um, you know uh, cis gender means just one step before that which is a person who has accepted the gender that they were assigned at birth Uh, and het of course refers to the heterosexual part uh, and so cis het is a term and and we'll come to many of these terms as well um, as we continue this series i just want to say that there's some confusion that arises because cis gendered and cis het sometimes are confused for each other but um they're different okay so this brings us to the end of the third episode yes this was a long one but we had fun talking about it and learning as we did it and next episode we look at d words do you have any suggestions for any words we should tackle you can write in to us with that or general feedback on podcasts at boomlive.in you can also subscribe to boom's podcast on platforms like apple and spotify 
Thanks for listening.